welcome to 1867 and all that. Season 2, Episode 4, Stoop to Conquer. Last week, we met the brilliant, ornery, and, well yes, handsome George Brown, a man who personified both the inner demons and angels of Protestant and Reformist Upper Canada. This week, we turn to another man who will cast an even longer shadow over Canadian politics of his era. In his case, dominating the political scene for more than half a century. I'm referring, of course, to George Brown's chief nemesis and fellow Upper Canadian, John Alexander MacDonald. Back in 1843, at a time when George Brown had only just arrived in Upper Canada from Scotland, this other man, a then 28-year-old John A. MacDonald, was living in Kingston and deciding to run for political office. He began as an alderman and then moved on to the assembly. Kingston was, in the early 1840s, the capital of the United Province. The young lawyer John A. had already made a, a name for himself as a capable defense attorney. Famously, he had defended several of the invaders of 1838, those attackers who crossed the St. Lawrence downriver from Kingston, absolutely certain that the Canadians were suffering under the yoke of British domination and were desperate for a savior. On arrival, the musket fire from the Canadian militia and British regulars belatedly informed the supposed liberators how wrong they had been. In the aftermath of the failed insurrection, MacDonald had acted as legal counsel for the group's leader, Niels von Schultz. Schultz was something of a romantic figure who, even in defeat, inspired admiration for his bravery. But the problem with defending someone like von Schultz was that not only was he guilty, he had even foolishly, if, if admirably, admitted his guilt. In due course, von Schultz was executed at Fort Henry along with eight of his co-conspirators. But the business leaders in Kingston noticed and admired the skill shown by his lawyer, and John A. soon found himself a much sought-after attorney, earning himself work in the much more lucrative sectors of insurance, banking, and railways. After serving one year as an alderman, he ran for and won office in the Assembly of the Province of Canada as a Conservative. Like almost all politicians of the day, MacDonald moved seamlessly back and forth between law and the world of business. Though it must be said that MacDonald was never all that successful at business, and his career was punctuated with periods of intense financial anxiety. Over the next decade, through the 1840s and into the 1850s, MacDonald showed himself to be a pragmatic politician. He was a conservative, but he stood uh, apart from the old Tory family compact group whose chief interest was in defending the established order. John A. might have allied with these folks on some issues, but he saw that success in Canadian politics required setting your sights on broader horizons. He was also, like many other reformers and Tories, committed to economic progress through development, railways especially, and the like. And most importantly, he was open to collaborating with and building friendships with his French Catholic compatriots. Most notably, John A. was very good company. He liked to drink and enjoyed, as one contemporary put it, a doubtful moral tendency. He was good with compliments, or as it would have been put at the time, the soft solder. Many people from all sides were happy to have an evening out with John A. In these early years, some even thought he was just too insufficiently earnest, that he didn't take matters seriously enough and wouldn't amount to much because of it. 
Even so, by the early 1850s, the period we're really at right now in, in the series, John A. Macdonald stood out as a possible future leader of the moderate Tories. Sir Alan McNabb was the Tory leader in the new government, but it was John A. who entered the cabinet as Attorney General for the Western Section, the very position that Robert Baldwin had once held. From here, Macdonald stood poised to grasp the leadership. It might have seemed to him, if not to everyone else, that it was only a matter of time. It's clear to us now that the new Tory-led government of 1854, or the Liberal Conservative government, you can use both terms, represented a turning point in Canadian politics. But this is mostly our retrospective view, and contemporaries couldn't be as certain as we are of how long-lasting or significant the moment would be. One thing was clear. The great reform coalition that had been built up in the 1840s was now torn asunder, ripped apart by the divisions that its leaders had always striven to hold together. The Lafontaine-Baldwin coalition had been a joining together of Catholic and Protestant, of French and English. But it had been more than this. It had increasingly in the 1850s been a joining together of conservative French Canadians and reform-minded English Canadians. Back in the 1840s, after the initial union of the Canadas, it had made sense for the two reform groups to link together. They all wanted reforms to the Constitution, after all. But after the winning of responsible government, that main constitutional question was solved. You could still aim for more Republican reforms, and some did. But responsible government gave French Canadians the kind of domestic self-autonomy that they had been seeking all along. Politics became about other issues, and on these other points, it was less clear that the English-speaking reformers and the largest section of the French bloc were really natural allies. There were still radical liberal reformers in French Canada, but these were increasingly calling themselves rouge, that is, reds, and they found themselves on the outside of the governing coalition, lined up against the more moderate and, indeed, sometimes decidedly conservative French leaders who represented the government and cabinet under Lafontaine and then Morin. So, if the French-Canadian left wasn't in the government, what was to stop the more conservative French-Canadians from linking up with conservative factions in Upper Canada? Why couldn't the governing coalition be reconsidered altogether? The answer, of course, was that nothing prevented it, at least in theory. And that is what led moderate Tories, people like John A., but not only him, from thinking that a new arrangement was possible, which is exactly what happened in 1854. Practically speaking, it meant that the English Tories had to moderate their views on a few issues and promise to cooperate with the French faction and vice versa. And this is exactly what happened the new government came to power with an agreement on several key issues. First, they promised to finally solve the clergy reserves problem. Note, they didn't say secularize the reserves because to some Tories who believed in the, the sanctified value of an established church, this was a step too far. Instead, both sides agreed to find a solution which distributed the lands and funds to the various denominations in trusts, offering you know, support to the churches, but only indirectly. This would remove the funds from the state involvement and put them into private hands. It would kind of solve the problem once and for all, or at least take it out of the realm of politics. Within a very short time, and finally with the British government's agreement, that is exactly what the new Tory government did.
Next, the new governing coalition also agreed to legislate an end to seigneurial tenure. This issue mattered a great deal to the French Canadians and to their leader Morin in particular. Remember, Morin had been allied with Hincks, uh, and he's still in government. Morin, that is. He had just swapped out the moderate Hincks for the Tory McNabb. And the government was also propped up by a few moderate Hinksite reformers too, though Hincks himself wasn't in the government. On this issue of seigneurial tenure, the upper Canadians needed to compromise, and they did so. It was all about how to compensate the seigneurial landlords. After all, ending the seigneurial system stripped the landlords of rights they believed they were owed. It was, in the end, about money. The McNabb Moran government found a compromise in which the landlords would be compensated for their lost rights directly out of government funds from the general government coffers. And if you're thinking this was bound to piss off someone like George Brown, you would be exactly right. The reform position, at least for the voluntarist reformers like George Brown, was that if there was going to be compensation, the funds should at least only come from Lower Canada. Upper Canada shouldn't pay the landlords of Lower Canada for the costs of eradicating an outdated medieval landholding system that had had nothing to do with the Western section. And yet, in the final deal, the compensation money came from the general revenue, that is, from both sections. It was to Brown another example of what he and many others were starting to call French domination. But on this, Brown did not get his way, and the bill passed. Within a very short amount of time, the new government passed legislation which effectively solved these two major issues that had plagued Canadian politics for years. It was a good start. The early months of 1855 saw a change of several key personalities, and also a sort of calm before what was going to be yet another storm. Okay, so who is in and who is out? First, there was Lord Elgin, the suave and powerful political governor who had overseen the Canadian transition to responsible government. He finally left office. Elgin would soon be off to Asia, where he helped put down the mutiny in India, from India, Elgin traipsed over to China at the head of an army, where he forced open that country to trade, sacking the imperial palace in the process. From there, he scooted over to Japan, signing a treaty that also opened that famously reclusive country to trade with Britain. Elgin was an absolutely fascinating guy, and his Canadian expedition, as significant as it was for us, was only one small part of his life. In Elgin's stead came the much less grand, but still solid and dependable, Sir Edmund Walker Head. Poor Head, like many a governor before him, was forced to arrive in his new home late in January, deep in the Canadian winter. We're not just talking about a switch in Governor General, though. The government leadership also changed. Morin, who was suffering from ill health, stepped down from office and was replaced by Etienne Pascal Taché, someone who had been around the political scene for his, for his own fair share amount of time. Now, seniority in these things mattered. Taché is actually a fascinating figure in his own right, and his selection perfectly fit with the times and the changing, more conservative face of French-Canadian nationalism. Taché had been both a soldier and a doctor in his early years, but one who was politically involved. He had supported the rebellions back in the late 1830s, at least, at least a principle, though he was not directly involved in the fighting. 
In their aftermath, he entered politics as one of those moderate reformers who were determined to attack the union of the Canadas and the yoking of Lower Canada alongside Upper Canada. In the 1840s, he served as a, a loyal lieutenant to Lafontaine, but also one with a decided interest in the militia and military matters. It was Taché who had famously declared in insisting on the loyalty of French Canadians as natural monarchists and conservatives that, quote, the last cannon which is shot on this continent in defense of Great Britain will be fired by the hand of a French Canadian. In the late 1840s, Taché was appointed to the Legislative Council. Remember, this was the, the upper chamber, the appointive body, very much like today's Senate. It was from there, the Legislative Council, that Taché came to the leadership when he entered the new ministry alongside McNabb in early 1855. Incidentally, the cabinet shuffle that followed on the creation of the new McNabb-Taché ministry also brought one new figure to the French-Canadian section that I'll just mention here quickly. This is when a certain Georges Etienne Cartier, later, of course, father of Confederation and bromance brother of Johnny MacDonald, the new bromance that is to come, that's when he entered the cabinet. Though few realized, including Johnny MacDonald himself, how important Cartier would later become. Now, if you're beginning to get lost amidst all of the many names, please bear with me. We are introducing a lot of figures, and some of them seem to pop up only to disappear again, as with Morin. That very much tells us something about the nature of parliamentary government in the 1840s and 1850s, when governing coalitions were unstable and political parties were very loosely defined. But Bear with me, because some of these figures will stick around. And yes, I'm looking at you, Johnny MacDonald, and George Brown, and George Etienne Cartier. Heck, even Taché is going to show up again at a pivotal moment in 1864. So the names will stick in time. Stick around. Let's get back, though, to the spring of 1855, as the legislative session was about to wrap up. We have a, a newfangled liberal conservative government headed by McNabb and Taché, and they started off well. They had transitioned the leaders in cabinet, but the coalition was holding. Taché, though, soon introduced a bill in the legislative council that stirred up the hornet's nest of sectional differences. Late in the session, even as many members had already left the then capital of Quebec to head back home to conduct other business, Taché introduced a bill to establish much more extensive rights for separate Catholic schooling in the Canadas, and in Canada West in particular. The bill allowed any 10 individuals in a local area to petition for state support in setting up their own separate Catholic school. It was the kind of bill that was bound to anger Upper Canadians, all the more so because the bill was introduced without anyone having even consulted the head of the Upper Canadian School System, Egerton Ryerson. The bill had to pass through the Assembly, and there it was the Attorney General, John A. Macdonald, who steered the bill through debate. Macdonald knew it was controversial, but he also knew his and the government's political success lay in trying to appease the French bloc on exactly these kinds of issues. There's a famous letter that John A. wrote around this time that's worth drawing on at length. 
because it gives you a sense of his thinking. MacDonald was writing to a British Canadian in Lower Canada. He admonished the Lower Canadian for treating the French poorly. MacDonald said that the British in Lower Canada, despite claiming that they wanted equality, actually wanted ascendancy. They were just like the Protestants in Ireland, or going further back, the Norman French in England. As MacDonald put it, you can't and won't admit the principle that the majority must govern. True, you suffer occasionally from a Gavazzi riot or so, but you Anglo-Saxons are not such bad hands at riots yourselves. John A. went on to say, No man in his senses can suppose that this country can, for a century to come, be governed by a totally unfrenchified government. If a lower Canadian British desires to conquer, he must stoop to conquer. Now, some people in recent years have quoted this last line and focused on the word conquer, suggesting that John A. is really talking about assimilation. And it's almost certain that MacDonald, like all English Canadians at the time, thought that the French in North America would eventually be assimilated. But MacDonald had no misconception that this would happen anytime soon, certainly not in his own lifetime and possibly not, as he said, for more than a hundred years. In the meantime, he went on to say, you had to, quote, make friends with the French and respect their nationality. This is likely why, though he knew the separate schools bill would be unpopular in Upper Canada, he led its passage through the House regardless. George Brown, of course, was furious. Surely the minister did not intend to push this controversial bill through the Assembly, certainly not so late in the session after so many members had already left the Assembly. But that is exactly what John A. intended to do. In the end, the bill passed, but only because of the votes of French Canadians from Lower Canada. In fact, a majority of representatives from Upper Canada, the very section where the law would most take effect, had voted against it. And there was the rub. Remember, the Canadas were governed as a kind of dual state. There were attorneys general for each section. There were even different educational departments for each section. The idea of the double majority was never put officially into practice, but it was an ideal that, when broken, generated intense controversy. Certainly, it was considered unseemly for a bill to be passed that would affect one section if a majority of members from that section opposed it. And yet, that is exactly what happened, and not, of course, for the last time. The legislators left Quebec. But if they thought the issue would be forgotten in the hazy days of summer, they were dreaming, and George Brown would make certain of it. All that summer, Brown's globe stoked the anger of Upper Canadians. Brown's paper had just bought up two rival reform papers and was now the largest circulation paper in the Canadas. Surely, the globe said, this could not stand. How could lower Canadian Catholics foist laws on Upper Canada where was the justice in this union? Brown was himself actually fighting a war within reform circles. Some argued that the union itself had to be dissolved. This was the clear grit response. It was useless to think that the two Canadas could truly be joined together under these conditions. But Brown urged a different approach, and his view largely won out. Brown had kind of two ideas. One was to speculate that creating a larger union, a union of all of British North America, 
even perhaps expanding westward and northward into the Hudson Bay Company territories, is what could save the Canadas. Surely in this wider union, Upper Canada would no longer be dominated by the sectional equality which allowed this kind of French domination. But that was a a far-off dream, or so it seemed, hoped for but not expected. The more practical measure, Brown thought, came in constitutional reform. It came in the now pressing idea of representation by population. Sectional equality had to end. Simply expanding the number of seats equally in the assembly between the two sides had obviously done nothing. Now it was time to ensure that each assemblyman represented an area with roughly the same number of voters. This was a a true and democratic reform. And it would also have the effect, of course, of diminishing the voices and power of French Catholic Lower Canada. It would end what Brown and reformers of his ilk, of course, kept calling French domination. The problem for the government was at that autumn, the capital moved away from Quebec City and back to Toronto. Remember, at this point, the capital was supposed to alternate between Quebec and Toronto every five years. When the assemblies reconvened in the autumn, they did so now back in the much more heavily Protestant and English confines of Toronto. They also, oddly enough, were meeting in the assembly room, which had been occupied over the last several years by medical students at the University of Toronto. Now, it's unclear what was exactly going on in the University of Toronto's medical program at the time, but the medical students had apparently left behind piles of bones that were discovered in the walls and a rather unpleasant smell that made everyone feel a little queasy. Although Brown pressured the government on rep by pop and the sessions that fall were acrimonious, there were some areas in which the politicians of the day found much to agree on, even George Brown himself, and that, of course, was the wonder of railways. That December of 1855, Toronto hosted what promoters called a great railway festival. It was a a pre-Christmas Victorian-era extravaganza. And while the tiny little city of Toronto had nothing on London's Crystal Palace that had been the wonder of the world only a few years earlier, still the local railway barons did what they could. In mid-December, they transformed the Great Northern Railway Freight House into a vast pleasure palace set to house more than 5,000 guests. The Festival Hall hosted a grand dinner that fed more than 2,000 diners. Armies of employees covered the machinery and railway tracks with carpeted wooden boxes and erected in the middle of the gala a vast fountain with seven jets propelling cascades of water up into the air. The water descended into a fountain that housed real live ducks bobbing about uh, uh, below. The whole scene was lit with gas lights and the lights had been shaped to spell out the names of the great railway lines, the Grand Trunk and the Great Western, as well as the names of the glorious imperial figures Victoria and Albert. Everyone was invited. You had Alan McNabb, the premier, who, of course, also happened to be a director of the Great Western Railway. There was the Montrealer George Etienne Cartier, in cabinet as a minister now, and also the lawyer for the Grand Trunk Railway. George Brown was there, too, and gave a, a marvelous speech extolling the age and even looking forward to the day when a railway line would join Toronto to the Pacific. They dreamed 
big, and they did so across party lines. The only main figure not present was Francis Hinks, the former premier and railway promoter, who had just left the country because the British government had appointed him to be governor in Barbados. So, as you can see, everyone could get along to serve their mutual interests and, to be more generous maybe, what they saw as the development of the province as a whole. After all, railways were the technological feat of the age, the means of both getting goods and people to and from markets to linking up cities and hinterlands to servicing the vast agriculture areas of the Canadas. And if you happen to get rich along the way, well, so much the better. In the background that Christmas, though, sectional divisions lurked not very far beneath the surface. Separate schools were, were there, as we've seen, and so too was the constitutional question of rep by pop that Brown and other reformers kept pressing. But this, these issues could seem abstract. Violence is usually much more salient. It stirs the blood, especially when it's paired with an abiding sense of injustice and violence was just around the corner. South of Quebec City, a gang of thugs had descended upon another man and beat him to death. The victim, to be fair, was a, a bit of a thug himself. There are few pure victims, and many of the details and mitigating factors would soon be forgotten anyway in the angry rage of injustice that followed on from the murder. It didn't help that the murder had gone unpunished, Despite the fact that it had happened in broad daylight, despite the fact that the dying man had apparently identified his assailants, the authorities in Lower Canada had yet to even apprehend the murderers. Oh, and did I mention that it had been a gang of Catholics who had killed a Protestant? Yeah, as you probably already know, and as you'll see next week, in the Canada of 1855, that last part really mattered. Thanks for listening to 1867 and all that. Next week, we're doing a deep dive into the infamous Corrigan murder trial and the tumultuous political fallout. We're also going to see how all of the political machinations of these years led to one more rather big shifting of political seats, shooing out old Alan McNabb and bringing into the leadership of the government a certain man from Kingston who was fond of the drink and the soft solder. If you like what you've heard, please leave a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcast. Tell your friends, send me a note. I always like hearing from listeners. Now, if it's at all of interest, listeners who haven't heard enough from me already can listen to a public lecture I'm giving on Tuesday, the 15th of March. It's going to be online. That's two days after this episode drops into your feed though quite possibly before you've actually listened, in which case you can forget everything I'm saying right now. I'm giving a talk to the Churchill Society for Parliamentary Democracy to mark the 40th anniversary of the 1982 patriation of uh, the Constitution and to explain why I think that the somewhat infamous Section 33 of that deal, the notwithstanding clause, is likely to be invoked a lot more in the coming years. If that sounds uh, even remotely interesting, you can find a link to the online talk in today's show notes. 1867 and all that is created by me, Christopher Dummett. 
This year, it's also funded by you, the listeners, for $5 a month. You can become an 1867 and all that patron, a real-life supporter of history in action. Thanks to all those who have supported already. Greatly appreciate it. Until next time, remember, there's a lot of all that to 1867 and all that.